Open God's holy word to the letter of 1 Peter, chapter 1. 2 Peter, excuse me. 2 Peter, chapter 1. Our focus this morning will be on verses 3 and 4. I'll be reading 1 through 15. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, may we be a truly godly people. In such a way that all glory belongs to Christ. And so bless this text this morning to make it so. Not because we in any way have merited this, but because Christ is worthy of such in His church. And so in His name we pray, Amen. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. To those who are so hungry, our text this morning is a feast. 
if you're hungry for something else, I'm not going to try to make this appealing or appetizing to you. I share with you John Owen's words with which he opened his masterful work, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. If thou art, as many in this pretending age, a sign or title gazer, and comest into books as Cato into the theater, to go out again, thou hast had thine entertainment. Farewell. I'm not going to strive in, in an introduction to try to make godliness appealing. I assume that if you are one of Christ, you hunger and thirst in this way. And so that the promise that's held forth here is naturally attractive to you. You long to be godly. But what is godliness? It's one of those words that we use and we don't ever really take time to pause and think of what it is that we're talking about. It's, we assume, we, we kind of have this tacit understanding of what it is, but we never really pause to think, what is godliness? Our text speaks of life and godliness. The pairing links them together. Godliness is a way of life. Indeed, godliness is life. As sin is death, godliness is life. It's truly living. The man who's truly and most fully alive is the godly man. And so in this way, you see that godliness is akin to righteousness or holiness. It's a, it's a different way of looking at the same thing. But then what in particular is brought to the fore? What is highlighted whenever we speak of this thing as godliness rather than righteousness? Well, the word can be translated very well as devotion or piety. And the reason why godliness is such a good translation, why we shouldn't argue with that, is because those are precisely the words that are used to define godliness. The Oxford Dictionary defines godliness as the quality of being devoutly religious piety. Unfortunately, we think of the pious person as that one who is religiously devout for a show. They are indeed devoted to a religion of self. But godliness is a life of devotion oriented towards God. It's a life centered around God. It's a life directed towards God. It is a Godward life. Godliness is simply a life of obedience to the great commandment to love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. The only alternative to true piety is idolatry. Listen to Calvin's definition of piety. I call piety that reverence joined with love of God, which the knowledge of his benefits induces. For until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield him willing service. Nay, 
unless they establish their complete happiness in Him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to Him. This text bears out the truth of Calvin's definition. You see here that godliness is a result of God's goodness, not the cause of it. Godliness is the result of God's goodness, not the cause of it. This is the motive. He talked about this motive of God's goodness being what induces godliness. This motive is what distinguishes true piety from false piety. If your attempt at godliness is all about merit and self-effort, it is a religion of self. It is false. In contrast, the godliness spoken of here is a gift. Verse 3, His divine power has granted, given, all things that pertain to life and godliness. Any true devotion to God is a gift. You can never be more devoted to God than God is to you because your devotion is His devotion to you. You can never outgive God. Anything you give is simply a small return of what He's already given you. We are like toddlers trying to splash our dad more than he can splash us. Our hands are so tiny and his are so large. God gives oceans and we return thimblefuls which we filled from the oceans which he's given us. Anytime you give to God, you've received not just what it is that you're giving, but the very giving itself is a receiving from God. Now, who grants here His divine power? The most natural antecedent for His is Jesus our Lord. Verse 2, He speaks of the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So the most natural is the, the last referent, Jesus our Lord. And I think this is further validated because it speaks of His divine power. It would seem a bit redundant if you're speaking of God the Father to speak of His divine power because divine power is the only kind of power that God the Father has. Jesus, however, is the God-man. And so I believe that just as Peter highlighted the divinity of Jesus in verse 1, speaking of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, he's highlighting it again here, His divine power. The divine power of Christ gives, and it gives everything requisite for life and godliness. An earthly and benevolent king may desire to give many good things to his subjects, chiefly safe and peace, peace, safety and peace. But there could be a thousand threats to that safety and peace, no matter how strong and mighty the king would be. Jesus' divine power grants, and there are no threats, nor are there any thresholds. He gives everything, and nothing hinders this. 
A good father may promise to give a good thing to his daughter that's well within his ability. But hardship, sickness, disease, death, so many evils could intercept his good intentions. But the one who gives what is necessary for godliness is Lord. It's divine power that gives. He gives without limitation everything that we need for life and godliness. So think of that sin that you hate. That sin that you want to mortify and kill. And hear this blessed promise this morning. Everything you need for life and godliness is granted by your Lord. Think of that yearning that you have to live piously unto God. To live karam deo before the face of God, devoted unto Him. And hear this promise. Everything necessary, He's granted. With the knowledge of this, though, there's a danger. It's the danger of thinking that there's nothing for you to do. He's granted it. It's just a gift. Just receive it. But such a conclusion isn't Bible logic. Bible logic concludes this way, verse 5. Because of this, for this reason, make Every effort. Beginning in the late 19th century, the Keswick movement, K-E-S-W-I-C-K, the Keswick movement, or higher life theology, spoke of two tiers of Christianity that were differentiated by having an experience of absolute surrender and full trust such that they lived on a higher plane of godliness and righteousness and holiness. Let go and let God is the most succinct and enduring statement of their theology. What's necessary for you to live on this higher spiritual plane? Just let go and let God just trust, just rest. And this was also per, uh, promoted by dispensational theologians who were in league with many of these Keswick theologians. But the way it, it got translated by them more so was this kind of language. You may have made Jesus your Savior, but have you made Him your Lord? This kind of decisive act whereby you come to be a real Christian, a serious Christian, one who lives a godly life. This was also perpetuated by many Pentecostal and charismatic groups that spoke of a second blessing or baptism in the Spirit. But there are not two tiers of saints. You don't need something more. If you've obtained a faith of equal standing in the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, if that's where you stand in Christ, in that Christ, by His divine power, you have everything necessary for life and godliness. Saints, you have Jesus. 
and you do not need more than Jesus. You remember how Paul exhorted the Colossians along these lines? See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in Him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. The whole fullness of deity dwells in Jesus, and you've been filled in Jesus. You have all you need because this one who fills you is Lord and he grants all you need for life and godliness. This does not mean that godliness is then easy for us. When Lindbergh knew that he had a plane that could make the first solo transatlantic flight, that didn't mean that he had a modern aircraft could make that, many, that could make that many times over. He had what was necessary to do it. That didn't mean it was easy. When a man has what is necessary to lift 200 pounds, that doesn't mean he won't have to exert, sweat, and push himself to do so. It doesn't mean that he... He, if you have the ability to lift 200 pounds, that means you can lift 800. No, it just means you have what's necessary. You might kill yourself. You might fold over bent in half when it's done, but you will have had everything necessary to get it up over your head. Likewise, all that pertains to life and godliness is given to you. That does not mean it's easy. But how do we rectify these things? He's given it to us, and then we're told to make every effort. What gives? The answer is simple. The effort is part of what is given. The effort, the strain, the sweat, the tears, the repentance, the hatred, the struggle, the fight. He gives it. Paul put it this way. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Work out because God works in. Your working out is God's working in. But further, our God is a God of means. Spiritually as well as physically. When God would give us fruit, He goes to all the trouble to make a big show of it. He could give it to us immediately and directly, but instead he would have a seed fall into the ground, rot, sprout, be nourished for months by rain and sun to give us fruit. Rube Goldberg has nothing on God's extravagant design. But for some reason, we think that when it comes to spiritual things, God should give immediately and directly. But our God is always a God of means. God always mediates His gifts. He wants to give us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and He does it through knowledge. This says a great deal about why we know so little of godliness. It's because we know so little of God. Knowledge of what? Of Him who 
called us. Now, who is this him specifically? Again, the most natural antecedent is the one whose divine power has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness, who is Jesus our Lord. But whenever we think of calling, the Father comes to our mind. And rightly so, we have a number of texts like 1 Corinthians 1.9 that tell us, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son. So the Father calls. But we must never so distinguish the Trinity that we're unwilling to attribute a work to one member and never another, even if Scripture says otherwise. I think 1 Peter 5.10 clarifies how this could be said to be the Father's call and also the Son's. 1 Peter 5.10, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. Where is it that the Father called you? It's in Christ. It's through Christ. So that the calling, though it is peculiarly and particularly spoken of as the work of the Father, can also be said to be that of the Son. You'll see more why I think it's so that it's speaking of Jesus here. By means of knowing Christ, the Christ who called us, God gives us all we need for life and godliness. Where do we get such knowledge? Again, too many assume this just happens directly. God just gives me this knowledge. I was, I was praying and, and the Spirit spoke. And it's, you see, that's experiential. That's the Keswick kind of theology. Where do you get this kind of knowledge? Peter is writing as an apostle of Christ. And he tells them that he's writing to remind them of things, verse 12. And he says that he's making this effort so that after he's gone, they'll be able to recall these things. And then he tells them in verse 16, we speaking of the apostles, did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. How is it that you come to know Him who called you? The apostle is telling you that His distinct office was about making Christ known. Peter is writing this letter not simply to tell them that godliness comes through knowledge of Christ, but to convey the knowledge of Christ that results in godliness. Knowledge of Christ happens through the word of Christ. Peter says this in verse 19, we have the prophetic word, meaning the scriptures, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. If you want to know Christ, hear Him speak in His Word. And this helps you make sense of something that's absent in many translations. Our text, verse 3, in the original language begins with as. As His divine power is the way the New King James has it, or the New American Standard, seeing that His divine power has granted. P 
Peter ties what he's saying in this promise to his greeting. The reason why the as isn't there so often is because it's really odd and bizarre and awkward to tie the body of the letter back into the greeting in this way. So translators are puzzled how it relates. As his divine power is granted to us all things. Tying this back into verse 2. May the grace, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord as his divine power has granted. Godliness is part of the grace that Peter wants to be multiplied to us and it's multiplied in the knowledge of our God and Jesus our Lord. But before we move on, there's a question here that we can't skip over. You've got to ask yourself, why describe Jesus in this way? As the one who's called us to his own glory and excellence. He didn't have to describe Jesus in this way. That's not, part, that's not central to the point he's making here at first glance. He wants to tell us that God's granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and he grants that through knowledge of Christ. Then he describes Christ in this way. Why this way? Well, before we answer why, we need to ask what. What's he saying, first of all? And when we know what he's saying, then we could maybe get to why. What does it mean that, and speaking of Christ as one who's called us to his own excellence and glory, there are three interpretations that are offered here. And it's not a matter of which one's true and which are false. They're all true. We have three true things, and the question is, which of them is true of this text? And the difference in interpretation comes because the word that you have as to can be translated by, called us to his own glory and excellence, or called us by his own glory and excellence. Indeed, if you have a, an ESV, you'll even see that this was a significant enough translation thing, and they realized the implications of it, that they put a footnote at this point. Quite often you have things like this in the text, but they won't mention them. It, it isn't that big of a deal. But here they do. If the correct interpretation is to, he's called us to his own glory and excellence, then it's speaking of the end or the goal of God's calling. And Peter's already spoken of, of the glory of God in this way in, in 1 Peter 5.10, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. He's called you to that. That's the end, the goal to which you are called. If by is correct, Peter could intend this glory and excellence as the means by which you're called. 2 Corinthians 4.6 speaks of this. God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Whenever God calls you out of darkness into light, He does so by a sight of the glory of Christ. It's the means by which He does that. Or, by could refer to the basis or grounds upon which He calls you. So that Jesus, 
upon the basis of who he is, glory. And what he has done, his excellence, that is virtue, moral virtue, his righteousness, upon the basis of his exaltation as your great high priest, and the basis of his righteousness, he calls you. You see, this speaks to why the the call of God is effectual. Because it's based upon Christ, not us. Peter spoke of the power of this call as it's rooted in Christ in 1 Peter 1.3. Whenever he said that God caused us to be born again to a living hope, and he did this through the resurrection, or you could say the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus' person and work, then this third interpretation, are the grounds of our calling. Now, all of these are true. Which one is true of this text? I think the third one, Jesus' glory and excellence as the grounds, he called us by his glory and excellence, is the most likely for this reason. Because this glory and excellence are then spoken of again as a grounds in verse 4. By which, which there is plural, referring to his glory and excellence. By his glory and excellence, he grants us precious and great promises. So, this glory and excellence that are in Christ as person and work are the grounds, the basis, not only for your calling, but for the promises granted to you. Now, verse 4 says very much the same thing as verse 3. The grant of verse 4, if not synonymous with that of verse 3, is, involves a great deal of overlap. In verse 3, divine power grants. In verse 4, upon the basis of His glory and excellence, Jesus grants these great and precious promises. See, why is it that Jesus can seemingly cast His pearls before swine? Why is it that He seemingly can extend extend such great and precious promises to such vile sinners as we. It's on the basis of His glory and His excellence. Precious and great promises extended to you, not because of who you are, but because of who Christ is. Oh, what promises, the the promise of verse 3 itself, the promise of divine power granting us everything pertaining to life and godliness, the promise of an entrance into an eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, verse 11, the promise, verse 16, of the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the promise seen in 2.3, 2.17, and 3.7 of the condemnation and destruction of the ungodly and false teachers, the promise of rescue from trials, 2.9. The promise of God's patience to us for our salvation, 3.8 and 15. The promise of the present heavens and earth being dissolved by fire and a new heavens and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells, 3.12-13. And the grounds of every one of these promises is the excellence and glory of Christ the glory of the resurrected and ascended Christ at the Father's right hand with all things being put under His feet, ruling redemptively. The excellence, the moral virtue of the one who is your righteousness, this righteousness which in you stand. 
Now, upon the grounds of his glory and excellence, Jesus grants these promises, verse 4, so that these promises are a means to a end. There, there's, a, there's a purpose or a reason that he grants these promises, so that, and then he tells you, through them. So these promises are given for a purpose, and then the words, through them, tells you that the promise is the means to achieving that purpose. You see how this repeats what you saw in verse 3? These promises are a means to this purpose. What are the promises of God but knowledge of Christ? Knowing who He is and what He's done and what's true for those who are in Him. Knowing His promises is knowing Christ. And so they're These promises, knowing them, is a means towards what? The answer is stunning. Some of the most shocking language in the New Testament. It's a means toward, so that by them, through them, we might become partakers of the divine nature. That's some of the most shocking language in the New Testament. For that reason, some of the most easily misunderstood. The Eastern Church, so think Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, takes this too far when they read this. In the early church, part of the distance that grew between East and West came about because the West predominantly spoke of salvation in terms of uh, in forensic or legal terms. Us coming before the judge and Christ our righteousness. Even Rome's misunderstandings happen in this light that we need to merit favor before God, you see. Whereas the East spoke of salvation predominantly in terms of theosis or deification or divinization. And so even great men like Athanasius would say things like, God became man that man might become God. And by that, he did not mean that man becomes divine. They took great pains to maintain the creator-creature distinction whenever they use language like that. And so they would, you'll read in Eastern theologians things like speaking of God's essence versus his energies. And they'll say that whenever we partake of the divine nature, it's a partaking of his energies, his work, his act, rather than his divine essence or being. And while they make all these qualifications, at the same time, you just want to look at them and smile and say, now you're just making things up. I understand that distinction. That makes sense. But I don't see that anywhere in the scriptures as far as how this is to be understood. Of course, this is an error that the Mormons run all the way with. Become God. That this was taken too far by the Eastern Church can be seen in the words of Simeon, the new theologian, 11th century, he writes, He has shared in what is ours so as to make us participants of what is His. For the Son of God became the Son of Man in order to make us human beings sons of God, raising us up by grace to what He is by nature, giving us a new birth in the Holy Spirit and leading us directly into the kingdom of heaven. Now, whenever you start to read this at large, what you realize is the atonement is absent from this concept of salvation. 
that their idea of salvation is rooted more in the incarnation rather than the atonement. Oh, you needed a Christ who could represent you. Yes, you, you needed a second Adam and you need to be in union with him. But he needs to make atonement for your sin to bring you near to God. The incarnation isn't sufficient. So what is Peter saying? I think the biblical language that speaks to what it means to be partakers of the divine nature is found in union and communion with Christ. You're in union with Christ and you commune, you fellowship, you participate in the divine nature in this way so that all your godliness is an expression of this life from which you're drawing from Christ. This is the way Paul spoke of it. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's partaking of the divine nature so that the very life you live is drawn from the triune God himself. So, I think theosis deification are too strong a language, even whenever thoroughly qualified and nuanced. But don't fail to marvel that your union and communion with Christ is such that Peter doesn't hesitate to speak of them as partaking of the divine nature. So up on the grounds, now, now notice that, that the ethical idea of this partaking is brought to the fore here. We partake having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of, desi- of sinful desire. So upon the grounds of who Jesus is and what he's done, that is upon the grounds of his glory and excellence, he grants us these great and precious promises through which Having escaped from the world, we partake of the divine nature. This is something that's decisively done. I think in both of these grants, it's something that's decisively done at our regeneration. And yet, it has this ongoing, continuing aspect. There is this union with Christ, so that all this is true. But then it's by communion with Christ that more and more of this is realized. We partake more and more of Christ as we are sanctified and we partake fully at our glorification. I think 1 John 3, 2 through 3 unfolds something of this for us. Beloved, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So here's this promise of seeing Christ and seeing him being transformed, conformed to his image. And then he says this, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So there's this promise that one day you'll see him and be conformed to his image. And then he tells you that right now, as you hope, as you believe, as you trust, as you look to this promise that you know, you're purified as he is pure. 
more and more of that future seeing and being transformed is realized right now as you look on these promises with the eyes of faith. Note all the links between these two grants. Jesus is the one granting in each instance. Life and godliness correspond to partaking of the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world. The grace of growth and godliness happens through the means of knowledge. And partaking of the divine nature happens by means of the promises. Peter desires in this letter that grace and peace be multiplied to us in the knowledge of our God and Savior, Jesus. The source that gives all that is necessary is Jesus' divine power. The grounds upon which he gives it are his excellence and glory. The means that he uses are knowledge and his promises. And the end or the goal that's achieved is godliness or partaking of the divine nature. Knowing Christ and all that's ours in him as held forth by the word of Christ is the means by which we commune with Christ and thus are conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And this truth is so rich, so deep, so glorious. Have you not sensed it? Have you looked at these two verses, how rich they are? That a whole other sermon is called for just for application and implications of this. Which is exactly what Peter does. Verse 5. Here's the exhortation. This being true, for this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with goodness, with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Do not skip over this reason to get to the action. Don't come to the scriptures just saying, just tell me what to do. Missing these kind of promises. That's exactly what Peter does not want to happen. He has set this foundation because he knows that it is the knowledge of Christ and he knows it's the promises that Christ grants that are used as God's means towards this action. Your action will short circuit if it is not the spirit wrought work of God by the faith-inducing word of the promise-rich Christ. Your faith will, your, your action, your attempt to make every effort will short-circuit if it is not spirit-wrought by the faith-inducing word of the promise-rich Christ. So I end with Calvin's definition again of true piety. And I hope now you can see just how profound and correspondent to this text it is. I call piety or godliness that reverence joined with love of God 
which the knowledge of his benefits induces. For until men recognize that they owe everything to God, that they are nourished by his fatherly care, that he is the author of their every good, that they should seek nothing beyond him, they will never yield him willing service. Nay, unless they establish their complete happiness in him, they will never give themselves truly and sincerely to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word as it holds forth Christ, not just telling us about him, but by it we gain knowledge of him such that we commune with him. And so knowing him and all the promises that are ours in him is held forth by him in his word, we partake of the divine nature so that we might live, so that we might be godly. And so work this in us by your spirit now. In the strong name of Jesus that grants all these things, we pray. Amen.